Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with Armin Afsahi, who is the Dean of Development and Associate Vice President of Alumni Affairs and Development for the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Harvard University. How do you fit that on a business card? Dean Armin, welcome. Thank you very much, Brent. Nice to see you. We are 10 minutes into recording, but none of you get to hear the last 10 minutes because that was just our pre-recording chit chat, but it has brightened my mood and our mean smiling big. And we've been looking forward to, uh, to catching up for a while now. So welcome. And uh, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I am feeling excited, motivated, optimistic, hopeful, and uh, on a variety of fronts you know, societally and the work that we do and the lives that we lead. So it's, it's, a, it's a good day. It's a great day to be with you, Brent. I'm glad to hear that. I feel the same way. And I, I uh, have to just acknowledge to our audience, right? I have varying degrees of pre-existing relationships with our guests. Sometimes I'm meeting people for the first time by way of the podcast. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, somebody that I've known for a long time. That is the case today, but I will have to say, if I had a spectrum, if there were a spectrum of, of people who I know the best, like the most, and have done the least amount of business with, there is one guy on the very far end of that spectrum, and that is our means. So just wanted to acknowledge that to set a little bit of context. <laughs> right as well as I... As well as I uh, feel like I've gotten to know Armin, uh, one of the great things about the podcast is we oftentimes, you know, in any of our professional relationships, our, our relationship is sort of formed at a moment in time, and then we get to know each other from that point forward. One of the fun things about the podcast is it's really been a catalyst to get to know you and other guests before we connected on the case circuit or at some conference along the way. And so I really have been looking forward to that because as much as I feel like we have a great rapport and relationship, I really don't know that much about the beginning uh, of your journey. And one of my favorite questions for my podcast guests has really been um, just learning more about your own journey to higher education. So many of us are in the sector because higher education has had a big impact on our lives, so much so that we've decided to dedicate our careers to that uh, to this sector. And so I, I have to ask you, going back to, uh, let's call it the mid 80s, uh, junior year of high school, who is that Armin? What was he into? And what led him to the UC San Diego campus? Wow, middle of the 80s, you're going that far back. This is a uh... It's going to be one of those contemplative sessions. Hey, right? It's your LinkedIn profile, all right? I'm just letting it go. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually, uh, I'll make it very brief, but I, I, I think it's a, it is a highly interconnected journey for me because I, I of course, I grew up in San Diego. I, um, I wanted to be an astronaut. And in fact, my eighth grade career wasn't a career center, but I forget what the, op the office is in a, in a junior high, but we take that assessment and it tells you the three careers that you're destined to, um, to assume or undertake. And my top one was astronaut. And I was so excited that I was going to be an astronaut. I fully believed that was going to be my path. Um, I graduated high school in 85. Um, traveling outside of the city was not really um, 
financially in, in the cars for our family at that point. Uh, we were political refugees, came to the U.S. and had to really, my parents had to rebuild our lives. And um, where, where did your parents, where did your parents come from? From Iran. So we, we, we left during the revolution and, uh, and, and we're fortunate to, to have a safe haven in the United States. And of course, extremely fortunate that my older brother was studying in San Diego. So that was the, the destination for us. Um, but I uh, chose to attend the University of California, San Diego and loved my experience there. It really awakened my sense of curiosity and discovery. I was um, first pre-med, but then fell in love with social sciences and uh, study of culture and values and, and human history and um, everything from anthropology to media. And, uh, and that, you know, graduated in 1990. And for me, it was, if some of you, some of the more mature listeners would relate, that was a really interesting time in our country. That was the first Iraq war. And so, um, you know, it was a tough employment market and I chose to take an administrative job at, at my alma mater in the academic and research enterprise side of campus, which then, you know, grew over the, the seven and a half years in that part of my journey there to really work in a, in a pretty important role, advising the vice chancellor for research and then working in the school of medicine all around the academy, the scholarly enterprise and working with faculty and scientists was fascinating to me to really so understand. We, we have very few um, members of the, the podcast roster who have worked in that side of the house. And so when you think about research and, and just the, the academy, what are one or two things that having spent that much time on the inside that are probably not appreciated by the typical advancement professional who, you know, has some exposure by the nature of the work, but hasn't been on the inside and might not have that level of empathy? Yeah, great question. I mean, aside from really gaining a deep respect and appreciation for the academy, uh, which for me, that was really formative and has been a, has been a consistent guide in my work in advancement. Uh, but I said the two things is one is really understanding the the, the, the dynamics, the incentives, the rewards of a faculty within an academic environment. And because I work very closely with them. And, uh, and, you know, that's something that you don't see as a student. Uh, and I think some of us probably in development, alumni relations or other areas of advancement, we may experience, but uh, that was a firsthand look and, um, and engagement in how they conduct their work, what drives and motivates them, what's really at the heart of the dynamics that they create with graduate and undergraduate students, and then their own networks and global associations. And then secondly, it's when they become administrators, those faculty who become department chairs and deans and vice chancellors and presidents. And I've, I've had really the privilege of working with um, some amazing academic administrators, both in my current uh, part of my career, but back then, and and that's another very rich area of of exposure to how are they guided? How do their academic uh, disciplines shape their administrative and management acumen? And uh, how how different are they from private sector executives? And uh, so, just having those two live side by side in my in my formative experiences, um, I think has been truly profound. 
And when you're in that role, inevitably you had some intersection with advancement or alumni engagement, I'm sure, you know, it's just a part of the university structure, but from where you sat then, like, what was the word on the street about the folks over there in advancement? Or like, what was the kind of dynamic between the faculty or the deans and so forth from their vantage point, looking over at the advancement operation, if you recall? Yeah, I think if my answer probably would be different than others who've had similar experiences at, at other institutions, this is UC San Diego, probably at, at age 30. This, this is, it's a still a relatively young university who has really achieved remarkable success on multiple fronts. It's nearly a $5 billion enterprise today, one of the top public universities. But back then it was relatively small. So proportionally the advancement function was pretty small. And uh, so I didn't know anything about it. I learned about the Alumni Association when I received the Outstanding Senior Award and went to the gala with my parents. and. And then I got involved as a volunteer. And that's that's where my my journey as a volunteer was cultivated, was fully post uh, experience. But there was, I never recall conversations being direct or indirectly associated in, the, in those days of uh, my professional years um, around development and the academic enterprise. And after that initial role, um, you took a right turn into the commercial sector. And maybe that's why you've always been so nice to me and other folks out there on the uh, conference circuit, because uh, you've been in a uh, business development, sort of, it sounds like sales and marketing type capacity, but I don't recall us really talking about that. And so I'm curious sort of what the the catalyst was to um, to move into the the kind of commercial side of the still education world is my understanding um, and kind of what some of your reflections were from from that time yeah first of all I was not I'm nice to you one because I like you two because I have enormous respect for the way you lead and just who you are so that's 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 the experience you get from me I hope consistently I was really just setting you up to say that so thank you so much that's great I, I read my briefing so that's good <laughs> No, uh, you know, I um, I was invited to join a startup with a group of um, alums, which then that was a right turn. And then that parlayed into a second startup. You know, they were successful, one somewhat successful. The other was more of an experiment. experiment. And uh, but they they taught me so much about, you know, this this thing that we talk a lot about now, which is fail fast and acceleration, agility, the terms that is often used now in, in, in our leadership and management or vernacular. It's like I experienced those firsthand with, with startups that attracted a significant amount of venture capital, had to go to market, um, had to sell and position services and products. All by the way, both of them were centered around technology or advancing access to education. And um, just to set some context, this was essentially like peak.com period, at least initial, right? Peak.com. So when I when I go to Case and I go into the marketplace, I mean, we went to every conference and exhibited, and I would be with the sales team, either part of or leading it, or the business development team, and just hustling, 
hustling to sell an idea, to sell the nucleus of idea, to bring early adopters to test our platform. And so, I, you know, when I first came to your office in Boston, I, 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 I think you've sensed it. I have this envy that I want that environment back. And I truly, I respect you because you've just have built such an incredible organization. But I think that's my five years or so. And then some of the work I did in, on, around the consulting side of it was I think just really help has been helpful to me because I can appreciate how to integrate pace, risk-taking, and uh, an acceleration of ideas into a, into an environment and a, and a, and a, and a profession that I think, you know, isn't, it's just like the rest of the educational marketplace. So. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, you know, we often, right. Our, I mean, our whole thing has been, how do we help the world of advancement operate more like a well-oiled marketing sales and customer success machine? That's it. And some people hear that and it turns them off because then it sounds like you're saying fundraising is sales and all these things. The point is like the process to define a market, segment a market, prioritize who you're going to engage with limited resources and go generate revenue is very, very similar. That is what the best advancement organizations do. The difference is when you were at EduPoint or Learning Framework Inc. or when I started Evertrue, unlike Harvard or UC San Diego, where there is a built-in community of natural prospects with deep affinity and appreciation for the mission and the institution who've already done business with you as students, when you're that guy at the conference circuit in those early years, there is zero. You, you wish you had, you wish you had predisposition. And, and so that's where <laughs> we look at it and we just continue to be on one hand, blown away by the 50 billion plus a year that is brought in by you and your colleagues to help create access and opportunity for families like yours and mine, while also being wildly optimistic about how much revenue is being left on the table in the absence of the pace and the systems and the approach that we're going to continue to champion until uh, my time on this planet is finished or we solve the problem, uh, hopefully the latter. Yeah. No, it, I mean, big way what I hear because I think, I know we've talked about this very thing and the thrust of what you're expressing. And I, I fully believe that because I think we we create you know if you think about it in the private sector language that you were just using you know this lead generation lead management qualification it's for us it's already baked in into it's baked into what we what we see in our alumni and it's often parent communities but there's a two sides to look at this brand one is say the side that i think is should keep us very hungry and motivated and focused and and with partnerships with companies like yourselves to be innovative, which is despite all of that, that higher education graduates these incredible individuals and we raise so much money. I think most places, and I think the nat national data, I haven't looked at it in, in a couple of years, is, is a very, not, it's not over 50% that participate annually. In fact, it's declining sharply every year. The publics are 10 and below. There's some outliers like Princeton and UVA and some of the IVs and privates. But to think that we can't make a convincing case 
to to our alum alumni that we're worth a dollar or an hour of their life every year. Like that's crushing. I, I always say that to everyone. I, I agree. Have that should that should be motivating to us. The flip side of this is this is where my optimism kicks in and keeps me in check. Is that I like to think, and in fact, when I actually talk to as many graduates of American colleges and universities, something about the experiences that our, our over 4,000 colleges and universities create, we should be also quite grateful that likely many of them are the ones contributing to the thousands of nonprofits and NGOs around the world. So we do cultivate the spirit of generosity. So one is on one side is like, how much of that do we bring back into our own universities? The other is, how can we actually celebrate the spirit that it continues to grow, um, you know, maybe consequence of access to education? So that's yeah. an interesting thing that I, I just, to me, keeps my, my, my eagerness in check um, to, to some Yeah. Extent. Look, I, I think that um, you're spot on. I mean, there's another way to, you know, if you think about giving as part of this alumni life cycle, right? I mean, what is the life cycle? You learn about an institution, you apply, you attend, right? You have your experience, you graduate. And behind the scenes, what are we doing? We're transferring data from like an admission CRM to an SIS and then from an SIS to an advancement thing. And there's sort of this like data thing happening behind the scenes. But really like what we need to be able to convince people to do is to go from being uh, a constituent who is paying financial aid adjusted, whatever, 10,000 a year or 25,000 a year or 50,000 or $80,000 a year to a graduate who will contribute $100 a year. It's like, how do we go from 80,000 and earn like 100 the next year? And it's, it's, and make it less of a hard stop from one to the other. And, 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 you know, I think the other, the other issue is just, um, the reality is when you map this sector to the commercial sector, and we see this in our data all the time, and I'm sure, you know, Harvard is, is uh, you know, a clear example of this. Um, in the commercial sector, somebody would say, how many good leads do we have? Let's come up with some ratio. And we'll say, for every great lead we have, uh, for every thousand great leads, we'll hire one salesperson. I'm just making it up. Uh, because that's what the model suggests would, would support a profitable return on that new sales representative. If you applied that to many leading higher ed institutions, you literally might have a number that suggests 5X or 10X the number of frontline development staff than we currently have today. And there aren't a lot of other sectors where you sort of, I don't know, structurally or however we get here, you sort of intentionally leave that many relationships mm -hmm. down in the middle to bottom of the giving pyramid where any sort of commercial organization would say, are you kidding me? We've got that many amazing leads that aren't being managed today. Like staff up, let's go. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I think there's, um, I think this is where there's really some it continues to be. And I think I, I'm really anxious to see the moment where we see a greater number of solution providers and partners but it i think what you're touching on brent is is how can we scale this operation to meet the opportunities that it is presented with and i don't think 
our current formulas and 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 structural paradigms and development alumni relations or the leaders <laughs> or the institutional cultures are creates a conducive environment to think in in terms of scalability um i mean how many a lot of us have worked on campaigns and you know it's like whether it's a cost per dollar that drives budget decisions or ambitions or you know how much how much can we draw down from the endowment or what funding models can we create to fund the campaign that's not often the way the other sectors think about opportunity so i think it's for me like the way i i tend to organize my thoughts around this very topic is how do we partner to really scale the work that we do because there is some personalization if i right. if i would in, in the context of higher education and the operating yeah. paradigms within our within our world that's well, a bit dissimilar to the private sector but we have not figured out how to scale um the organization i think adam and others try through ai but or are trying through those things but um i think that's i think that's where the one pathway exists no doubt and how we might do that armin is radically different in mid 2022 that would have been in January of 2020. Exactly. And you think about the fact that, you know, when I go look at the Harvard alumni population and you know, think about the distribution of that community geographically for example, every single one of those people is now a Zoom link away. They're a Zoom link away from a more authentic conversation than they've probably ever had with somebody at Harvard University, but certainly maybe less ideal than being able to fly out and get together in person and have some of those kind of unstructured moments we were talking about before we kicked off. And I do think this sort of incredible forced adoption of technology from the youngest to the oldest in a two-year period is just starting to be realized but it's tough because we also are feeling our pressure to get back on the road and to start doing the events again and we could have reunion again and some of those things that are sort of inherently less scalable but highly personal how do we make sure we don't lose this moment to do these things that are now far more personal than we would have been able to do in the past even if they're not the tried and true yep. engagement models Absolutely. And you and I are getting together. I mean, we're going to be at the case summit this weekend, for example. And so, you know, first time in, in a while that I think a lot of people will, will be able to get together um, in person, but we're going to continue to lean into in our world, right. Digital opportunities like the podcast, um, you know, to engage. Now, if you're listening at this point and you're thinking, wow, these guys are talking a lot about sales and revenue, and these are some cold-blooded killers out there in the development game. I need to pay Armin some respects because you know he came up in a really um, engagement-centric, community-centric way, uh, and and I actually you know love that about your your career path, and and I suspect that it gives you you know great empathy for many of, of the different kind of colleagues that you'd work with across the advancement enterprise, but I'd love to get some of the highlights when you had that opportunity to take that associate vice chancellor role um, 
at UC San Diego leading this kind of advancement enterprise, you know, connecting engagement and career and, you know, annual giving in a way that maybe, you know, certainly had not been done there before. I just love some of your reflections on, on that experience. And, and I know there are probably some shout outs to folks along the way that you might want to provide. Absolutely. No, I think uh, it's, 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 I've been part of, part of teams, whether, you know, I, I joined a team or I built a team with others, but it's been some of the, some of the fondest memories I have. And I think some of the times of my career that I think we were, we started to do some really special things that I know that have, that have since been modeled, which is just really fills the heart um, that, you know, there, there were, there were merits enough for others to want to consider doing that. Um, you know, I, I, one shout out I give is to Jim Langley, who is really, was the person that really invited me to the world of advancement. You know, I served on the alumni board and met him when he became our vice chancellor and, and uh, Jim and I just had just a really, a special relationship, but he's the one that um, just kind of wanted me to bring this perspective that you and I started in the early part of our conversation. And, uh, and it was a risk taker because then it was risky <laughs> and it was, you know, it was tough for me to be, be brought into a development world um, with someone who's never, who didn't work in the phonathon and then annual giving and, you know, major gifts and so forth. But um, I think, you know, at, at UC San Diego, one of the things when I, when I came back from, Jim went to Georgetown, I joined him. That's where we crafted and launched the Discovery Initiative, which became an, a national model for, I think over a hundred universities had adopted some version of the, the student discovery program. I love the days where we're blueprinting it with Matthew Lambert. Yeah, and, I was going to say, so Lambert was there. School, Sean Scoville must have been there. No, Sean, had, Sean had left, but, you know, Jim was had Mike this, still there or no? No, Mike and Sean had left. Okay. Person, and then Jim came in as, as VP, but Matthew was back then. I mean, Matthew's like, you know, you know, he's like also on one of my highest pedestals. But, but Matthew was like an assistant director. I don't know. He was he just this just like incredibly talented young professional. And when Jim and I thought about this idea, it's like, who could we give this to? Who knows our students and works with the senior class gift? And, you know, you give, you you kind of give a half an idea to a, an incredibly talented human being and, and support that person. I mean, this has been a recurring theme in my career well, is whether well, it's been afforded to me or I've had the privilege of, of being part of affording it to others. It's like, when you unleash talent, um, magic happens. And that was a discovery thing. San Diego. So I, I, just on that, I've heard Matthew's, I've heard Matthew's kind of perspective on that. Um, but, you know, many of our listeners maybe didn't, didn't catch that episode yet. What is that discovery model? Like, what was the concept and sort of why do you think back on that so fondly? Because it, it really, it, it is when, I think it was even in San Diego when Jim and I often talked about how do we bring something unique and scalable to the world of development. And, and it was the untapped um, potential of our undergraduates. That's, 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 that's where the idea was, was, being, uh, was being developed. And then so it's like, can we create a sales, a team, a development team? And what could it look like? And that's, that's, that was the, the seed of the idea for the alumni discovery initiative. And generally it was get your best student ambassadors and give them a portfolio, you know, hook or crook, create a CRM, which we did, um, get a good manager, Matthew, and uh, 
fund it, give them a stipend per interview, train them, teach them, motivate them, and then let them go to their hometowns when they're back home or just when they're in town, have them do one, two, and depending on how much money they want to make, <laughs> some of them did 10 interviews a week. Um, and so we just we just created that. I mean, we- But we this is what, like, where is the post-COVID digital version of that? Like, this needs to it, come it, back with a so, new- One, it's not a difficult business unit to launch. Two, it's high risk, low risk, high reward. Secondly, I mean, then in San Diego, when when I then I I we've all evolved this to some because it has to take the personality culture of the place, but it's often been an, an assistant director or program manager. I'm talking about the level of investment you make at an FTE level, and then inspire them to lead this program. And wherever we've done this, and other places that have done it, um, they've seen this magic happen. And I think it's like so it's it's low risk, high reward, easy to launch you engage students and you get a lot of leads, like highly qualified right. leads. Because believe it or not, your alumni are far more <laughs> willing to share the life stories and their passions and their ambitions and expectations and criticism and et cetera with the student. And then what, what I learned from that experience was this is probably the best way to foster a network and really create deeply beneficial, mutually beneficial relationships between alumni and students. I mean, the Discovery Initiative was the, was the yeah. first building block that gave me the idea of integration of career services into advancement. I, I wanna talk about that, but just to double click on the discovery piece, I think especially at a time when call centers are being you know shut down and people are looking for that new approach and you talked about it earlier, how do we really scalably engage people in a personalized way this this sort of student discovery 2.0 feels like it is yet to be really cracked in a post kind of pandemic environment um and so you know might might want to pick your brain on that here in the coming coming weeks and months because there's something there we should and i you know i think even then this is what 2005 i think when we launched it back then and then since then, it's just, as I said, it's been different versions. But even then, we were so surprised and just pleasantly surprised when students taught us how to do better research. I think in that is where like the idea for LinkedIn integration came to me right. at San Diego. We were the first. But they're like, yeah, we used Google. You should check it out. It's really useful. We were like, no, you have to wait 12 days for the research request to be submitted. And then somebody then does a research report and then a manager has to approve it. And they're sitting there, I want to make my $30 an interview. So how do I like rapidly get some intel on wow. this person? So there's like, there's something about the ingenuity, human ingenuity and in this generation and they know the institution. Anyways, I could you're I love it. Yeah. It's that. like, how do we, uh, they'll help us work TikTok into the strategy one way or another <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about career because, you know, you've definitely been at the forefront. I'd say one of the pioneers without a doubt at really looking at the intersection of career service, you know, career development and alumni relations and advancement more broadly. Historically, I mean, I lived it uh, at Brown. I mean, it was like career services in this tiny little office over here, frankly, 
limited resources relative to how important, you know, that function is. Um, and then sort of, you know, in the beautiful buildings over there is where, you know, the alumni team was. And um, there are some folks, I'm sure, who, who have pushed back over the years on, you know, we're not a jobs machine. And we've heard that sort of narrative. I think that narrative is quickly going away because the market is speaking as it relates to what people want. Um, but what, you know, what was your journey? What inspired you to start thinking about that intersection? And then what, I don't know, lessons did you learn? Or, you know, when you reflect on it, what are you most proud of? Yeah, I think it was um, really, I think it, the, 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 the idea really came from, you know, we did a lot of work in San Diego to just really learn from model institutions. I mean, we visited some of the IVs and some of the privates and publics around the country when um, the chancellor then asked me to take on this role because we were just, you know, our alumni relations and even alumni giving in San Diego was was terrifyingly low again, and opportunities and, and potential very high. So after doing a lot of work on the alumni relations side and, and building that program and building the staffing and and some innovations that we did, brought into just the alumni relations program. Next step was to bring in the annual giving operation. We're one of the, I think, first pu public universities that fully brought in annual giving out of the development team into the alumni relations team. And primarily not because of anything other than we could, it could change our narrative um, engine and it could, by conjoining the two, and it could create more of a transparent relationship um, to our to our community, and we we had enormous success. I think it's 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 I think it's it's documented. Um, the third piece of that was okay. We got into the value proposition analysis. Like we have sort of the structural things that are working towards, but what is ultimately the value proposition that we need to extend to our graduates that gives them confidence and hope those two things together, confidence and hope that their affiliation with their alma mater um, is an investment worth making. And the question that emerged out of that inquiry was what, let's force ourselves to ask one question and force ourselves to have one answer. Now in a university, you never can do that, right? It's thousand questions, thousand looming fields, but we forced ourselves to think of it that way. And it's like, why do people go to, why do people come here to have a better life and get a job? It's like, if you just narrow it to that, narrow focus it to that and make that your value proposition, what's missing in our portfolio? And it was this great disconnect with the entity that it is the expectation that you're going to help me get a job is really failing at doing so. So it got me really intrigued. And I, um, I traveled around the country. This was my other tour. Went around the country and looked, talked to career services directors. and. And I went to a lot of really, I won't say I went to Harvard, but I went to a lot of other, you know, institutions, probably like 15 or so. And I, I never, I heard consistently that our job is not, it's not about placement. And I said, but that's what the market is saying. It's like they come to this building because they ultimately are looking for your guidance to help them get a job. And that disconnect for me was really daunting. And I'm not saying that's maybe they have very good reasons why they believe that. And I think 
that national associations um, really hold that line it's that career services is not about placement. I firmly believe it is. I think it is like if you believe that's what your obligation is as a as an operating unit, then you will then organize yourselves to achieve that objective. And you know, quick litmus test, if your enrollment marketing materials are sharing job placement stats. Precisely. And, and then you're telling people that about. that's not our job. You know, that is not exactly consistent for by sure. Way, I, by the way, I interviewed a lot of alums and we did, a, we did a survey with great returns that what is, of all the things, what's the greatest expectation and the biggest failure? But a great partner who designed that instrument. And it was about career place, jobs, career development and access to a network. So I was fortunate that we're getting a new chancellor. So I went and made a pitch that this is, we should really, and I knew the career services folks well, because I was a student there and actually was a positive example because they helped me get my first job. <laughs> but, um, and we came up, the chancellor and I came up with this idea of a vertical integration, alumni development, annual giving and, um, and career services, vertically aligning and integrating those entities all under one unit. And that's, I think, the new trend yeah. that I'm, I'm so excited to see. So well, we took that to DU and other places. And I, you know, look, I think, first of all, starting with market sentiment, you know, getting the survey, I, I, I know that your peers have found similar, um, you know, probably modeling off of your work. They've, they've, you know, hey, guess what? This is an area where we're probably over-promising and under-delivering. And you look at, you know, enrollment marketing materials at any school and nobody's shying away from, that being a part of the why, and then how do you actually deliver? And then what is the perspective of your constituents? And sometimes people are afraid to do surveys like that because it reveals clear weaknesses. But what I love about that model is that you took career services, which in my experience, not a lot, but in my experience, working with career services leaders is so hamstrung because it is viewed as a cost center of the institution. Absolutely. And you took it and you made it part of a revenue center. And then you recognize that if one of the primary drivers of satisfaction or dissatisfaction is career support, and you wanna create a healthy, strong environment for growing donor lifetime value, which is gonna be rooted in satisfaction and gratitude, then you gotta take some accountability for placement and that will compound in the short term by way of participation, and the long-term by way of planned gifts that otherwise never would have materialized. Absolutely. Well said. And um, I think I won't say that in all, in the two, two times that I've done this re-engineering, um, I won't say it's, it's been easy because you also really have to be mindful. And I know Matthew Lambert is now doing this at William & Mary. I'm aware of multiple other universities that have undertaken this thing. I think... Um, I think the awareness that the recognition that the, the change management side of this, because you've got career counselors that are really part of the student advising um, culture of the of, of a university. And what we did gradually is either reshape their jobs and help them see themselves as placement officers. So career coaches and placement officers. And then the advisory role shifts back to the, the college advisor. So there's, there's, a, there's some very important 
considerations. And that's part of that, is the organization ready for this? Is the culture um, going to be embracing of, of, of this type of change? Those are fundamental and I, I wouldn't say simple things to, 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 to engineer and to facilitate as part of something like this. But, um, so, so you had the opportunity to architect that change and be a part of what was a real growth story at your alma mater. And then you had the opportunity to really try to take that playbook and apply it in that vice chancellor role at the University of Denver, which was very much another growth story. And so in a couple of minutes, just what are some of your reflections on that experience um, that, that you reflect on most positively? Yeah, I mean, it was so it was so exciting. And it was probably one of the hardest things to walk away from my San Diego role, because we were just humming. And, you know, we took a team of six. And by the time I left, I think we're at 140 member team that that really did development and scholarship fundraising and career development, alumni relations It was just the value chain that we created was so magical. And I think the results and even when I look today at the trustees on the foundation and the biggest donors, they're all coming from the, the community that we cultivated. It's just, it's like, that's what makes me love the work that we do is, is that we see the connectiveness to these intentional strategies and designs. Anyway, Denver, when I went there, it was part of my, it was, it was really part of my negotiations that I would be interested in this job if at the beginning of my tenure, that the chancellor would have the career services be part of advancement. So she had the wisdom and the and the and the thrill and the and the openness. So that's how we entered. But I couldn't do it if I was not able to do all I could to recruit Brandon Busby to because I hired him in San Diego. He helped build the enterprise and the industry element of it. And then having Brandon just join me in in at, at Denver and uh, and then he came in as an associate vice chancellor and and just helped build this incredible thing. We funded this amazing building now that has houses all of it. It's it's magic. I, I, I earlier said you had the opportunity to architect the strategy at UC San Diego, but you actually sort of got to be an architect uh, as it related to the physical footprint at, at UD, which sounded amazing, or DU, which sounded amazing. It was pretty fun. I mean, I. I always said, like, whatever this building is, it needs to have something that shines a light as a beacon of hope for the students. So they, when they walk around it, they know that this place will introduce me to amazing people, will cultivate my skills, and will enable me to have my internship and my first job. And I will forever remember that. And so Mark Rogers and Brandon and those who, after I left, they've, they've created the space. Like, when you look at the photos, the back stairway is like this lit beacon. So it's it's like you gotta, I mean, this is the the poetry of the of the experience, but kudos to Brandon and to the team who, you know, have taken taken that and uh and just done marvelous things with it. You know, we're almost at time. We haven't spoken about Harvard at all. This is a so let's talk about Harvard because I will, admit, <laughs> I will admit that I was both thrilled when you uh shared that news that you were joining Harvard and a little bit surprised. West Coast guy, you know, kind of generally over there, Mountain Pacific, a little bit of a stint in DC, but what inspired you to take the role at Harvard and, and help us understand the scope? I, I uh, commented on the expansive job title up front, but there are different lanes that you're operating in. 
you know, how, how's it going? Sort of what's the reflection a couple of years in now? Yeah. Um, well, you know, after I grew up as a San Diego Chargers fan and after being crushed by the Patriots several times in the playoffs, and I just realized like I could actually trade the Padres for the Red Sox and the Chargers for the Patriots and, and see the four seasons. And, and uh, so that was part of that. It was like, just, just being in this ecosystem in the Northeast and in the Boston Cambridge with, with these incredible institutions, I can't tell you how awake I feel. I, every day I, I, wherever you go, you're just surrounded by, by curiosity and, and, uh, and hunger and hope and it's just Boston and Cambridge is I I it's amazing. It reminds me of UCSD in in you know in the 80s and 90s where it was really trying to define itself, but it is well defined in the history of the place. I just would give a lot of credit to Brian Lee, who has served as the chairman of Case and you know vice president at Tufts and Caltech and then came here. I've had a long association with Brian. I have incredible respect for him. I mean his his career and his professional contributions is, is documented. What people don't know often about Brian is what an amazing human being he is, how centered he is, how much love he has for the work he does and, and the way he cares for the, for the teams he cultivates. I always wanted to work with Brian. So that was a draw. And then of course, uh, Dean Gay, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, probably one of the most incredible and principled leaders and, and Larry Backhill is our president. So those are those are the reasons, and then serving Harvard, who really engages in the in in the everyday and most consequential set of things, and uh, and being part of this community is is just an honor. And so, truly, for this for me was, of course, the the Patriots and the Red Sox, and you know now the Bruins. But um, really the opportunity to be here at Harvard at this point is um, is is a true privilege for me. You are entrepreneurial and you have worked in entrepreneurial startups. You have worked in entrepreneurial settings, in growth settings, in higher ed. And I actually think Harvard is far more entrepreneurial than it maybe gets credit for, given how just storied the history is. But um, there, there is probably um, a limit to the sort of change that maybe can be tolerated just given how successful the advancement enterprise has been. And so I'm just curious to kind of get your perspective on how do you calibrate the inherent entrepreneurial entre, entrepreneurial nature of your work in a more mature environment? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think there's a lot of ways to answer it, but maybe I will ground it in, in, in something that I hear a lot. I heard a lot and I often hear from, from whether it's a president or a dean of the college, but you know, just it's worth knowing that Harvard is gonna be in 2036, Harvard will be 400 years old as an institution. It was, it was here before many things were actually in place on this, on this part of the continent. We've been through civil wars and world wars and, and such. So it has been that entrepreneurial spirit of Harvard and its its commitment to principles and values, and um, that has has enabled it to continue to evolve, strengthen, achieve the remarkable and extraordinary excellence it has today. So I think thinking that just because it's mature and and large and complex, I credit entrepreneurialism as a spirit of, um, to 
to its journey. Um, and I see it every day in my colleagues. I think there's a, you know, we have an enormous responsibility to be responsive and to change and to examine our structures financially, uh, residentially, academically, you know, our, our relationship with the community. Um, where I think it's more challenging is that it's, I think maybe where you may be coming from is, is does it do business more entrepreneurially? I don't know if that's, that's what you're asking, but as an institution, I would, I would posit that it is absolutely entrepreneurial and as leaders um, every day think about ways that they can, uh, that we can best represent ourselves. Uh, to yeah, no, I mean, society. look, my my experience was largely through my time at the business school. I was there from 2008 to 2010, when uh, I think there was probably this moment where it's on one hand financial crisis. On the other hand, there was the backdrop of just Facebook and Google and LinkedIn and sort of the explosion of tech that was largely rooted in the West Coast. And there was a little bit of catch up and like seeing how quickly once they decided we want to be world-class in entrepreneurship. And we want to do that in a way that is not just siloed in one college, right? That was when the Harvard Innovation Lab was basically created. And it was just like overnight, it just, you know, it just kind of solidified this, um, you know, strength of entrepreneurship that did not necessarily have like a clear home um, around, you know, campus. And so that was like just one example where no, it no, just no. seemed like Fair. it happened really, really fast, even though the the reputation might be well higher ed slow or whatever it may be. I, I did not experience that. Yeah, good. Um, well, we were commenting earlier about how we are just locked on our Zoom blocks here, and our time is expiring. I just want to say thank you. You're such a positive, inspiring, optimistic person that's channeled throughout this conversation, and it's just great to see you again. I look forward to catching up um, in Chicago. But last opportunity shout outs to your team are you hiring and if people want to stay in touch with you or get in touch what's the best way to do that um best way i think i'm easy to find but it's armin underscore offside at harvard.edu um i will just uh yeah we are hiring like everyone else and it's a really exciting time in our industry in terms of talent and our obligation to build a more diverse and inclusive community so if you're interested if you're a risk taker if you're a hope seeker if your heart is always needs to be filled with joy and the abundance of opportunity and optimism, come talk to me. That's the, uh, man, I might apply. That sounds pretty uh, good. I, you know, I heard Warren Buffett once said this is years ago that always work at a place where you go to work singing every day. When your song stops, it's time to rethink. Um, I sing to work every day and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting other storytellers and songwriters and singers. So um, these are really important times. And the more we attract people to this profession, I think the better the world will be because what we do is noble and it matters. And and um, so that's that's what I like to say the closing and to say thank you for this opportunity. Uh, thank you, Armin. Inspiring yeah. thoughts to close on. I'm going to go write a song. I hope everybody <laughs> does the same. You do uh, write songs. <laughs> and with that, Brent signing off with today's guest, Armin Afsahi, Dean Armin from Harvard University. Take care, everybody.